0: So we're going to kind of go through those things a little bit, but we're going to continue to talk today on peace, because what was the thing Pastor Dave said to us last week is that in order to identify the attacks of the enemy, we must first establish peace in our households. Likewise, in order to identify the attacks of the enemy on your life, you must first establish peace in your life. That's easily said and not so easily done, right? So we're going to define some things today to help us get ready to move us into the peace of God. So some of y'all know me. Some of y'all know me pretty well. You know, I'm a pretty practical person. I like to break it down. I'm a nerd to the core. Give me a math problem and I'm happy for days. Give me some Hebrew and Greek and Latin roots, and I am a kid in a candy store, so we're going to break things down today about peace, so just hang with me, but we're going to get to the practicality of how do we establish peace, what does it mean, how do we use it, what do we have to do to get it, to maintain it, and then next week we're going to get to the business of getting things done to make sure that we've got it in our lives and in our households. Does that sound like a plan? Sound like a plan? Thank you, Angie. I appreciate that. (laughs) I needed some help getting moving there for just a minute. All right, so this week we're going to focus on defining. Oh, it's bright. We're going to focus on defining peace from a biblical perspective. So we're going to look at what's required in order to obtain peace. We're going to identify peace. We're going to give it a name. Yes. Yes yes we're gonna dismiss our children we're gonna do I was gonna make y'all stay down here and be boring with adults all day long can you believe that yes thank you thankful for Amanda to keep me in line over there I was gonna make them stay in here the whole time they would not like me anymore after that all right I think I'm just gonna leave this lid off so I can get to my half gallon of water when I need it. Okay, so we're going to be defining all of those things, and then the last thing we're going to discuss today is identifying the greatest enemy of peace, because sometimes we have to give things a name to be able to deal with it, right? It's hard to deal with something that we don't know what it is, so this week we're going to do all of those things. I have a lot of scripture for you this morning, a lot, so bear with me, buckle up. We're going to move kind of fast. If you are a note-taker, please take note of the scripture references. Because once we kind of talk through these things, I will tell you, we are barely scratching the surface in a less than one hour service of the meaning and the depth of everything in these scriptures. So I encourage you, write them down, take it home and hang out with Jesus. Because if you look more deeply into what peace is, who brought it, how it works, What we need to do in order to obtain it, there will be no stopping you from maintaining it in your life. We can't obtain and maintain what we can't identify. Okay, so I would encourage you to do that. We may not have time to flip to every verse, so I'm gonna read them, we're gonna talk through them. If you've got time to get there, feel free to jump there with me, but we're just gonna get moving, okay? All right, and lastly, I don't know if all of you know this but my kids are homeschooled and so the teacher in me like rises up when I have to teach something so we got homework this week we got some homework this week because like I said we're gonna identify some things this week but next week we have some work to do and if we want to get some work done I need you to come ready to get that work done is that fair is that fair one of the things that I love about Sunday morning services and about teaching and about discipleship is people are able to unpack for us things that we may not have seen before, but it should not end when you walk out that door. Here's the thing that we were talking about in in a staff meeting here one Monday morning. I was telling Dave, I was like, man, I take notes like a crazy person and I write them all down and I think I've got these 10 like golden nuggets that I'm gonna take home and study. But if I don't take the time to review them all, I remember one and the rest of them disappear. And so God unpacks all these incredible things for us, and we miss out on some of the depth of what he's got for us because we walk out of here on Sunday morning and think we don't need to continue to put it in the rest of the week. So I encourage you, if you take notes, take notes. Take references, the scripture references, take them with you, and dive in a little bit deeper on your own throughout the week. All right. Let's pray because I really need some Holy Spirit to help me get through some of this today. Um, And then we're going to move into the word. Heavenly Father, God, we are so thankful for what you've already done this morning. God, we love your presence more than anything. And I am thankful for a house full of my family members that are hungry for the truth, that are hungry for the word. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would increase in me right now. They don't need to hear my opinions or the words of a person, but they need to hear the revelation of God. So make my words your words. Let me decrease and you increase in Jesus name, amen. All right, so the first thing we're gonna do today is be nerds, is that fair? (laughs) We're gonna define peace because one of my favorite things to do in the Bible is go back to the original language. Because one of the crazy things about when something is translated from one language into another is the meaning doesn't always change, but sometimes it's not as deep. Right? Have y'all ever done that Google Translate thing where you type something in and you translate it from one language into another? And then if you hit the translate back button, you can't even recognize what you put in there. It, uh, it is no longer English. You there is no telling what's coming out. And so sometimes things get lost in translation. Some of the meaning behind it gets lost. And the cool thing I think about Hebrew is that some of the way that Hebrew words are formed is they create more of a concept than a definition. They get, there's kind of a deeper meaning than just a couple of words that can define it. And peace is one of those. And we're going to jump into that real quick. So How many of you have ever been frustrated especially when somebody asks you to do something or be something that you can't understand there is nothing more frustrating than someone telling me I need to do something and I don't know how to do it what it is what to do and they're just like okay do it bye My favorite is when people say you need to act more like Jesus that's real hard to do if you don't know how Jesus acted it's real hard to do if you don't know his character if you don't know what he likes what he dislikes what makes him happy what he loves when somebody says be more loving that's real hard to do if you don't know what love is it's hard to be loving when you don't know that love is an action and not a feeling It's hard to be loving when you don't know what love really looks like because you've had some really bad examples of it in the past. This one might stir up some people here this morning, so don't throw nothing at me. This one is one that the Lord convicted me of a couple of years ago when I tell my kids not to talk back, but I don't define the difference between asking a question for knowledge and talking back out of disrespect. Did you know that the word why can be said in more than one way? The word why can be said with the heart of, I will do what you ask me to do, but please define it for me so I can learn from it. Or it can come from a place of stubbornness that says, why do I have to do that? I don't want to do it. But here's what happens when we don't define things for people, when we just throw something out there, when we teach our kids that they can't ask the question, why do you know that we're their authority? and they project their authority onto the Father and then we're gonna turn around and tell them that they need to ask the Lord questions so they can understand him? They're not gonna do it. Why is not bad. Why with the right heart is a beautiful thing because it gives them understanding. We can't ask them to do something that they don't fully understand. It's frustrating. And I think the concept of peace was really frustrating for me for quite a long time. Really frustrating. Because people would say, well, you have Jesus, and Jesus is your peace. And I would sit back and think, well, why is my life as crazy as it is? If I have Jesus, and Jesus is my peace, then why does sometimes it feel like chaos and turbulence? It is so hard to do what we don't understand or to implement what we don't understand. So with that in mind, we're gonna define peace. So let's start with the English definition of peace. The English definition of peace is two things, calm and tranquility and the absence of war or conflict. That's it. It's calm and tranquil. It is a lack of conflict. So if we read all throughout the Bible and it says Jesus is our peace and he came and he gave us peace and he left his peace with us and there's all these verses about peace, our minds in a Western world immediately go to he came to bring me calm, he came to bring me tranquility and he came to eliminate conflict. Well that gets real confusing when you get over into Matthew 10 and it said don't think that I came to keep conflict from happening but I came as a sword to divide. It gets real confusing when we don't understand the actual meaning of the word. So we're going to jump into the Greek and Hebrew meaning of the word peace. In the Greek and Hebrew, the the word peace has a much deeper meaning. It does mean the absence of war in some contexts. It does mean a sense of calm in some contexts. But more than that, it not only points to the absence of conflict, but the presence of something greater than conflict. It's a whole concept. The word in Hebrew is shalom. The Hebrew word shalom means to be whole, to be complete, to be lacking nothing. So in our English definition of the word peace, and I I threw this out to my youth on Wednesday and they did a pretty good job with it actually. But we were defining if we were to look at something visually, if we think of peace What do we see when we think of peace? And there were some good answers. There was like a quiet brook and hearing water and there was a still forest and just stillness and quietness that just this stoic stillness of strength, something that's been there forever. Those are some really good examples, but let me tell you what the visual references for peace are in the Hebrew. Wholeness as in a stone that is complete in its whole shape with no cracks and with nothing missing. Or a wall that has no gaps, no cracks, and no missing masonry. That's different. That's different than calm and tranquil. So if God's definition of peace is wholeness and completeness, then are we reading it incorrectly when we look for only calm and tranquility? It kind of takes on the context of something that has a whole lot of moving parts, something that's really complex and all of the things fit together and work together to make something whole and complete, kind of like machines. Everything in it works together to make things whole and complete. Who else in this room is a little bit complex? I'm a lot complex, I'm a, I'm a, I guess I'm a woman, that's okay, we're a lot complex, but all of the pieces of who we are, relationships, personality, situations, everything that we have in our life, all working together creates a, com- a sense of completeness and wholeness. That sense of completeness and wholeness when everything is in alignment is your shalom that is peace it refers to a state of well-being and anytime something in that is out of alignment in the in the Hebrew in the the culture then if anything was out of alignment they would say that your shalom has broken down and if your shalom has broken down this is my favorite part your life is no longer whole and it's in need of restoration Why do we think restoration is a negative word? Because it doesn't mean that we're innately broken. It means that we need a savior. And that's a good thing. In a state of wholeness, there's a a couple of different ways that shalom is used. Let's back up. We're gonna use this really quick. I think this is fascinating. In the Old Testament, you'll find almost any reference in the Old Testament where you see the word peace, it's a direct translation from shalom. So in Job, Job says my tents are in a state of shalom after he counted everything that he had because he had everything that God gave him and nothing was missing, okay? So sometimes it's about being complete and whole in what you have. It also speaks of if you make damages to someone else's property. Let's say you have a dog that goes and kills somebody's chicken or goes and messes up somebody's yard. To bring shalom in that situation is to make complete reconciliation financially, emotionally, circumstantially, to fully reconcile the situation, to bring wholeness to the situation. I thought that was fascinating because I spent seven years working in uh, personal injury law. And one of the things I heard over and over and over about the financial part of personal injury is it one of the things that's most important is a concept called being made whole. They are responsible to completely restore everything to you. That's the concept of Shalom. And what the third way that it's used is in reconciling relationships. And in reconciling wars, I think this is fascinating as well. Do you know that peace, when it talks about shalom in terms of kingdoms, and it says they made peace with each other, do you know that does not mean that they just stopped fighting? It actually means that they became a team and started working for each other's mutual benefit. To create shalom in relationship doesn't mean I forgive you, but we don't work together no more. It means I forgive you and we find a way to mutually benefit each other. Does anybody notice a thread here? (laughs) This is my favorite part of this whole thing. When Jesus showed up, he came and he repaid our damages. He came and he reconciled our relationship. And he came and he gave us the part of us that was missing that made us whole. And that is why in the New Testament it says that Jesus is our shalom. The word for shalom in the Greek means the same thing. The word is irene. It still has a full context of meaning, but when you're reading in the New Testament, you see the word peace in the New Testament. That's the word that you see, but it carries over the same context, that it's more than just calm. It's more than just tranquil. It's a state of being whole and being a sense of well-being. You know, I think that it's, it's beautiful that Jesus is not just a picture of peace, but he is peace. In Isaiah 9, 5 and 7, it says, For unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his, children, and his name. shall be wonderful counselor, mighty, king, everlasting father, prince of peace, and the increase of his government. And the peace will, there will be no end. There's a couple of things, and I'm, I made the youth listen to this Wednesday night. I don't really have time to jump into it just yet, but if you ever want to find something fascinating, go to Isaiah 9, 5 through 7, and look at the original language of Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We have them listed as separate things. They do not. It is one continuous name, that defines the name of who is going to be sent. And names in the Hebrew were an identification of who you are, right? Esau's name meant Harry. They named their children based on their characteristics, okay? So in Isaiah, when it says this is his name, it's saying this is who's coming. Get ready. And if you look up what those mean, those words are beautiful, but they do not hold the context of the meaning. The last part of that where it says the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Right there, that means that his dominion will continue to grow and he will continue to be shalom. He will, make, he will heal all things that need to be healed. He will break free all things that need to be broken free. He will mend all things that need to be mended. He will restore all that is broken and right every wrong from the beginning of time to the end of time. There will be no end. We're going to run through a couple of scriptures and I might bounce back and forth for just a little while. So y'all hang with me, okay? There's some deep stuff in here. So I'm going to go to Colossians 1, 19 through 20 for just a minute. So I never want to say anything that's not backed up by the word. Because my opinion does not matter. I tried to play God for a real long time and I was real bad at it. So we've talked about this morning that God came to reconcile our relationship with Jesus. That he came to make us whole. To make us a complete person by reconnecting us with the spirit that we were originally created with. And that he he came to repay damages. So I'm going to show you in the scripture, biblical references that point to every one of those things. Okay, we're going to run through them. Colossians 1, 19 through 20 says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth peace by the blood of his cross. He came that through him would be reconciled to himself all things making shalom, making wholeness by the blood of his cross. In John fourteen twenty four through 27, it says, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all I have said. Y'all, this one is deep. If you're going to spend some time on something this week, hang out here for just a minute. Jesus says to his disciples, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. We're going to break that down for just a minute, okay? I'm going to sit on this one because there's some good stuff in here. So when he says, my peace I give you, he's talking about the reconciliation and relationship with God. He's saying, I am in right standing with the Father, and through me, I'm going to give you right standing with the Father. I'm going to reconcile you, wipe away the wrath of God, and give you access to the Father through me. Okay, so that is the reconciling of relationship. We're gonna look at the verse in a minute, but well, let's just go there right now, why not? Why not? Romans 5.1 is the reference in that verse, and it says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, Since we have been made just in the sight of God by faith, we have shalom with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. It doesn't mean we have lack of conflict. It doesn't mean we have calm with God. It doesn't mean we have tranquility with God. It doesn't mean we're no longer at war with God. It's bigger than that. It means you are made whole with God. You are reconciled to the place where you are invited into the throne room of God to meet with him face to face and bring all of your needs to him. The second part of that verse where it says, my peace I leave with you. This is talking about the peace of God, not reconciled with God, but made whole in spirit. The reference to this one is in Philippians 4 and 7. Philippians 4 and 7 says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. What does that tell me? All through Proverbs talks about guarding your heart. All through the Word, it talks about renewing your mind and guarding your mind. It tells me that it is the wholeness that God creates in me that guards my heart and mind. We're going to get to the practicality of that here in just a little bit. But let me tell you, that's part of the process of sanctification. It is something that we work out as we go. It is not a suddenly moment. So if you want to get to the place where you have a guarded heart, where you have a guarded mind, where you are in control of your thoughts, where you have created wholeness within yourself, we're going to do that over the next few weeks. We're going to walk that out. But that's what this is talking about. He brings you reconciliation, but he also brings you a process that can get you to holiness if you're willing to go there. You know that salvation happens in an instant, right? There's, there's an, an instantly moment when we turn our lives over to the Lord and we become his. But sanctification is a process. We become his immediately, but we start looking more like him as we go. And if Jesus is the picture of wholeness, then my wholeness happens while I become more like Jesus. So we're going to continue to talk about that in just a little bit. Ephesians 2 and 14. It says, For he himself is our shalom, who has made us both one and one. And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. We're going to sit on this one for just a minute too. Because when it says in the beginning of that, for he himself is our peace. That literally means he himself is our peace. This is not talking about he brought it to us. This is Jesus is shalom. Jesus is the whole and complete and perfect picture of humanity and spirit as one. He is what we were intended to try to be but failed to be. He is everything that we should look for and look towards and model our lives after. He is our picture of wholeness. He's our picture of wholeness. He is our peace who has made us both one, he has reconciled me to the Father, and who has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He sacrificed his body as the payment for my sin. It's all there. All of these verses so clearly sum up How Jesus came to bring peace to people that he paid our debt that he took care of reconciliation that he paved the way he gave us everything we needed to get to the point where we had the opportunity to do what Adam and Eve had in the garden which was walk with the Lord in the cool of the day and let him help us work out our issues you know how much I wish that was a thing I wish it could just be a little breezy outside and I could just hang out with Jesus and be like, let me tell you about my day. I do that, but he's not right there, you know? Like, I think it would just be fabulous. But he gave us the opportunity to be restored to that situation. We are not separated from God by his choice, only by ours. Here's the scary thing, and here's where we've got to start to take responsibility for the place that we're in. If you feel distant from the Lord, it is not because of him. If we feel distant from the Lord, it's time to look inside ourselves. What do we have going on? What are we afraid to be truthful about? What are we keeping in the dark? What are we keeping hidden? Are we th- what do we think we're keeping hidden? Because he knows all. I don't know why we try to lie to him about it. We had the worst day ever, and we go to Jesus in prayer, and we're like, Lord, thank you for the greatest day. He knows. He knows. And you know he's just sitting up there like we do with our kids, and he's like, I don't know why she's lying. I can see right through her. So we've talked about reconciliation. We've talked about the payment for debt. But what about the part of well-being? That's a big one. That's a big one. We're going to hang out on that for the rest of the day because here's where the preparation comes in for next week. I got some, oh, it's so hard to not jump ahead into what's coming. And it was pretty difficult to divide what to talk about today and what to talk about then because it's all so relevant to creating peace in our lives. But I'm just going to be obedient to the Lord. We're just going to obey. We're going to lay the foundation. We're going to obey him on the foundation. And then next week we're going to get the business done. But When we talk about well-being, the well-being part of peace, this is the part where we get to get off the couch and stop being a spectator, right? Because Jesus did the original legwork. He showed up, he paid our debt, he reconciled our relationship. He is not going to do the rest of the work for us. That is our job. He did everything that he needed to do to put things back the way they were in the Garden of Eden. But in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were still accountable to the Father. What happened when they did something they shouldn't have done? He showed up and he was like, where are you at? What you doing? And they said, I hid because I was afraid to tell you what I did. They were still accountable to the Father. They still talked through things with them. They still worked through their issues. You know, one of the things that frustrates me, and I love that Pastor Dave made a post on Facebook about it. If you have not seen it, go look at the post on Facebook that Pastor Dave made this week about process of working out our junk. You have to have Jesus first. But there's a process for a reason And just because you come to the Father does not mean that all things are made well in a moment. And it would not be the kindness or the grace of God to do that. And I'm going to define for you why. If you are asking God for everything to be a suddenly moment, take it away. I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to feel it. I don't want to work through it. Take it away. I'm going to show you here in just a minute why he's not doing it, and he's not doing it on purpose. It's not because you're not doing something right. It's not because you're sinning and he's not answering your prayers. It has nothing to do with those things. It's because in his kindness and in his goodness and in his grace, he knows what's best for you, and handing it to you is not it. So what is it? that gives us the ability to experience the wholeness in our life. Y'all ready for our least favorite words? Obedience and personal righteousness. See, when Jesus came into the picture, he created a shift. So prior to the time of Jesus, the children of God were under the law. And the law was all about external actions, right? Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. It was about your external action. When your thought became an action, then it became something that we needed to worry about. The dynamic shifted when Jesus showed up because in Matthew 5, starting in verse 17, it says he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And then if you go down to verse 21, he starts taking everything that is the outward sin and he starts turning it to the inside. Not only can you not kill somebody, but you also can't be angry with them. Not only can you not commit adultery, but you also can't have lust in your heart. Obedience is clearly now both about action and about intention. He turned everything inward. He made everything about the heart. Why did he do that? Because prior to the coming of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God did not reside on the inside. Now that the Spirit of God resides on the inside, we have some house cleaning to do to be able to hold the presence of the Spirit of God. In Isaiah 3 and 10 whoo all right these are some hard ones are you ready no y'all ain't ready are you ready y'all quiet today I'm used to youth whoo they're a little more lively all right Isaiah 3 and 10 tell the righteous that it shall be well with them that word be well is wholeness wellness shalom tell the righteous that it shall be well with them for they shall eat of the fruit of their deeds Isaiah 32 and 17, and the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness will be quietness and trust forever. If peace in the Bible is quietness, why is it separated? In Isaiah 32 and 17, it is saying when you have righteousness in your life, the effect of that is that you're going to have wholeness and completeness. And when you are whole and complete, your life will be quiet and full of trust. Because here's what happens. When we have something missing in us, we start looking for everything that's going to fill the void. Right? The opinions of other people, the situations that we get ourselves involved in, whether it's relationships people-pleasing, substance abuse. We're looking for something that's going to fill the void. And sometimes there's easily identifiable things, right? Like when we look at substance abuse, we can look at, we're probably trying to numb something. We're probably trying to fill a void. Here's where we start to get a little blinder on and we need to really pay attention. What about when we have some insecurity and there's a hole in us where we don't know our true identity And then we get into situations and circumstances in our life that are frustrating and difficult and we're looking for the opinions and the approval of others to fill the hole in our identity and then we have no peace because we're in constant turmoil. See, it's not always about the external anymore, it's also about the internal. What about our authority issues? What about the place where we haven't let the Lord heal the way we view authority? Authority is not a bad thing. Authority is mandated by God. What about the places where we refuse to be submissive to any kind of authority because there's been an abuse of authority in our life? And then we're in constant turmoil because authority does not like it when we do not submit. (laughs) I guarantee you if you take the time to look at the places in your life that do not feel peaceful, you will be able to connect it to a missing hole. Something that we're looking for to fill it. Does that make sense? Are are you following me there? All right. Isaiah 26 and 3 says, You keep him in perfect peace. Whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. All right, so we're going to go back here. In 32 and 17, it says, The effect of righteousness is shalom, wholeness, peace. The result of righteousness is quietness and trust. And then it says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts you. That just told us right there how to obtain righteousness. They're connected. The effect of righteousness is wholeness. The result of righteousness is quietness and trust. You keep him in wholeness whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts you. When your mind is focused on the correct thing, you will act in righteousness and feel whole. In Isaiah 59 and 8, it says, The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have made roads crooked, and no one who treads on them knows peace. That's a scary verse. Because some of the darkest moments in my life have been because I felt broken and like something was missing and like I didn't have the wholeness that I felt like Jesus had promised to me. but I didn't understand the connection between my mind and righteousness. In 1 Peter 3 and 11, it says, Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek. This is in the New Testament, so it's irene, which means the same thing. Let him seek peace and pursue it let him turn away from evil and do good let him seek wholeness completeness reconciliation and do good we are not out to seek calmness and tranquility that makes no sense in the context of the word when it says you will be hated as i was hated there will be troubles in the world rejoice when you get into hardship Obedience is your key to peace, to well-being. You know something I really love about the word is that it's a repetitive story. It reminds okay. This reminds me of my grandpa. We're gonna take a family field trip for a minute. Is that cool? Okay. My grandpa, before he passed, like when I would always know he was serious about what he was saying when he would repeat it. Yeah. Exactly. Three times, two or three two times was serious. Three times was get it done now. Like and he would go ahead and repeat it before he knew you were not going to do it. Like he'd just say it three times. Go out there in the yard. Go out there. Go go out there. Go out there. Immediately. Three times repeated. Because when we repeat something, it gains intensity and depth, right? We know they mean it. And then we know that there's more to it than just get out there. There's like a consequence that comes with it or something. When somebody's just trying to describe the depth or the size of something, and they're talking about like a hole in the ground, like that's, there's a hole over there. There's like a whole hole over there. When something repeats, it increases in intensity and it increases in size in our mind. Here's what I love about the word, is it's a repetitive story of reconciliation, a love story from the Father all throughout the story from beginning to end, it's I created you, I loved you, I lost you, I ransomed you, I restored you, over and over and over. From the very beginning, I created you, I loved you, I lost you, I ransomed you, I restored you, look at the Israelites. They would go in these periods of time where they were super close with the Lord and they were following him and he was blessing them and they were walking with him. And then, oops, I lost you. And then something would have to happen and they would be ransomed back to the Lord and then he would restore them to right relationship with him and it would start over. It's over and over and over. I created you, I loved you, I lost you, I ransomed you, I restored you, guys, that is our process of salvation. People don't come to the place where they trust Jesus without realizing He's their Creator. They don't come to the place where they trust Jesus without realizing He loved them before they ever knew who He was. And it is not a love that you see as a worldly love, it is a love that we cannot fathom, understand, or imagine. We don't come to salvation to Jesus, understanding our need for Him, if we don't realize that we've been lost from Him, that we've lost something. That way back in the Garden of Eden at the fall of man, we lost the connection with God that we were intended to have. But here's where most people stop, at the ransomed. Most of us believe that the moment that we realize that we've been ransomed by Jesus, that he died for us, that he paid the price for us, that he got us back, that we're done. What happened to the restored? Do you ever notice how all through the word, when he restored people, there was always a call to action? He would even say in the New Testament, you've been restored by your faith. Now go and sin no more, or now go and tell others. It was always followed by a call to action. Even when Israel would be ransomed back to the Father, he would say, I've forgiven you for what you've done. But now, here's what I need you to do to fix what happened while you were being crazy when they had taken on idolatry, when they had mixed their religion with the religions of other countries and of other people groups, he'd say, okay, so I ransomed you, you're back to me, but now I need you to go fix that mess. And here's how we're gonna do it. What makes us think we don't have the same mess? You know, I was raised in church. I was raised in religion, not relationship with Jesus. At no fault of the people who were teaching me, I was just stubborn. But even being raised around believers and even being raised in the church and even being around the things of God, I was so full of the culture because it is a lot louder than the church in most places that I have some messed up thinking patterns. Anybody else have some messed up thinking or is it just me? we learn how to behave and how to think and what life should be like because of our surroundings, because of the people we're raised by, the people we spend time around, the friends that we surround ourselves with, the culture of the area that we live in. It gives us this picture of what life is supposed to look like. As people, we're made to be adaptive. The definition of adaptive is the process by which a a species becomes fitted to its environment. Adaption is a fabulous thing. It's created by God. We would be dead without it. The problem is when we adapt to something and then our environment changes and we don't change what we've adapted to. Right, so let's just talk about it practically. Let's say I move from my house down here in the south up to a northern state, and I bring all my southern winter clothes with me, and I don't change the way I live my life when I get there. I'm probably going to freeze to death. And I don't like to be cold, so I will be very cranky. Let's talk about something family-centered. What if you learn all of your communication All of your relationship skills, your parenting skills, your marriage skills from broken people. And then you get put into a healthier relationship or a healthier environment, but you don't change the way you thought about it, and you bring all that mess with you. We're bringing the death into the new situation. We cannot use old broken thought patterns in a new environment and expect them to work. So here's where the kingdom of heaven comes in. And this is what I think we fail to teach people on a consistent basis. The moment that you decided that Jesus was pretty awesome and you wanted him to be the Lord of your life, the moment that you laid your life down and said, he's going to be the author and the leader of my life, you became a citizen of a kingdom that you don't know anything about. You became a citizen of a kingdom. What does a kingdom mean? A kingdom means it's a group of people that has dominion and government and principles that are different from another. You became a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, which means from here on out, those are the principles that you have to live your life by. This is why the word says that we have to renew our minds. We have to transform our minds because we are no longer of the world. We're in the world. We have to learn what it means to live from the kingdom of heaven. So let's just, let's just throw out a couple of principles. We're taking a little rabbit trail here, but I think it's important that we kind of nail this down for just a minute. In the world... You got this crazy, you only live once mentality. Well, absolutely, but it's eternal. So do you want to eternally live with what you decided to do because you only live once on a Friday? The principles that we live by in the culture are not the same as what we live by in the world. In the culture, you say whatever you want, because when you say whatever you want, it means that you're powerful. It means that you're true to yourself. It means that you're not hiding. In the kingdom of God, we know that our words have power, and we need to be cautious with what we say and how we say it. And when you become a citizen of the kingdom of God, whether you know that your words have power or not, they do. And what you're speaking is doing something, even if you don't think it is. It is mandatory that our minds are renewed and we understand the principles that we are supposed to be operating by. If you don't, you will not have completeness or peace. We were all born into a world that gratifies sin, that glorifies the destruction of truth, glorifies perversion, lust, greed, self-centeredness, divisiveness, distortion of gender, distortion of God's ordained family unit. It would take forever to list all of the ways that each one of us have been impacted by the culture that we're surrounded with. But more than anything, here's the two things that I think the enemy has done because of that culture that has paralyzed the church. One, it has paralyzed our minds. And two, it's distorted our identity. When you take away someone's identity and their perceived ability to control their thoughts, you've rendered them powerless. So because of our environment, we've become wired for worry. We've become adapted to the culture in the culture. The right thing to do is to talk about being busy. I'm so busy. I have so much to do. I'm such a productive person. How are you today? I'm doing so great. Got a lot to do. Got to get it done. We're wired for worry, we're wired for struggle, we're wired for insecurity. If you don't believe that we're wired for insecurity, talk to a 10 year old girl and ask her what she thinks about the way she looks. Ask her what she thinks about whether she's accepted intellectually. If you don't think we're wired for insecurity, ask any young person whether they feel valued for their opinions on anything. We're wired for anxiety and shame and unworthiness. I am not saying that we should not pay attention to mental health. We absolutely have to. That's what we're talking about today. What I am saying is that unwell mental health should not be glorified. People wear mental health issues as a badge of honor. And their transparency about it is something that they take pride in. We should not hide the things that we struggle with, but you do not have to stay the way God found you. There is 100% a place for mental health professionals, medications, they are necessary, they are needed. God heals in all kinds of ways. But our identity should not be found in what we feel is broken but what we know is whole. So here's what I feel like. I feel like the time has come that we need to take back our paralyzed minds. I think the time has come that we all need to decide that we are no longer powerless over our minds or our emotions. And that the mentality we have that we are a victim to our situations needs to disappear because we are only a victim for as long as we allow ourselves to be. We've become so used to the freight train thoughts, the busyness in your mind, the things that don't disappear when you lay down and you get quiet and everything just starts spinning and you just pray, oh my gosh, just let me fall asleep so I don't have to deal with it. We've become used to that. That is not normal. That is not the way we're designed. That's the world, not the kingdom we become used to the incessant internal chatter. Am I the only one that can clean my house and have an entire argument with somebody that ain't even there in my head? Anybody else ever done that? (laughs) Like the whole thing, like the whole argument. I'm gonna plan out what you're gonna say and then how I'm gonna respond to that. We didn't even have an argument, it's not even there. My husband hadn't even come home from work yet and I've got it all planned out. What is that? That is not the kingdom, that's the world. We've accepted these things as ju- we're just people, we're just human, that's how we're made. Romans 12.2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern the will of God and know what is good and acceptable. Our mind has to become renewed to the kingdom and to our new environment. We have to understand how we're supposed to behave, how we're supposed to operate. What does peace look like? God's peace is not the world's peace. God's love is not the world's love. God's joy is not the world's joy. For everything that God gives us as a fruit of the Spirit, there is a worldly counterfeit. And in order to be able to identify those, we have to be able to define the real one. What does it look like? How do we know what it is? In Romans 8 and 6, it says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on spirit is life and peace, is life and wholeness. Colossians 3 and 2 says, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Philippians 4 and 8 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, and commendable, if there is anything excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, think on these things. Why does the Word talk so much about thoughts if we ain't supposed to do nothing with them? All right, here's my favorite one, y'all. That's my favorite one of all of them. And it's because for a really long time, this was my favorite verse, like my favorite go-to to feel like I was controlling my life, which, which is funny, because <laughs> the only one who's ever been able to make sense out of my life is not me, it's Jesus. But anyway, 2 Corinthians 10 and 5. We destroy all arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Let me, let me share with you the... The picture that the Lord gave me on this one day? I I was running around like a crazy person, y'all, taking every thought captive, and like I'd be saying it out loud too. People probably thought I was nuts in Walmart. I'd be walking around, this thought would come in my head, and I would be like, I take it captive. They probably thought I was going to kidnap some kid. I don't know what they thought was going on, but I would say it out loud, and then the Lord showed me this picture one day. He said, girl, you out here running around trying to take every thought captive, and you got this Wild Thought Zoo over here with all these thoughts in these barred cages and you got a whip trying to tame them all. You don't need them to be tamed. You need them to be trained. I totally forgot about the part where I'm supposed to make it obedient to Christ. You can take it captive all day and you still got to deal with it. Where's the part where we make it obedient to Christ? I never came back around to that. It's time to stop trying to tame our thoughts and to train them. But training them takes time. Training them takes intention. Training them takes effort, investment. In order to transform your mind, you have to rewire it. One of the the classes that I took in college, it was probably one of my favorite classes, it was on the science and psychology of learning. And it helped me understand the process of the way that we learn things and the way that the thoughts are built in our mind and that it actually creates a structure that is very hard to break down. And in order to change a thought or change the way you think, you have to intentionally interrupt the rhythm of the way that happens. We have to rewire our minds to our correct identity, to wholeness, to completeness, to steadfastness, to love, to joy, to peace, to patience, to gentleness, to kindness. We can't do that if we don't slow down. I think this is where we get kind of bent out of shape. I read um, just a quick article one day that was talking about the idol of effectiveness. And it was talking about how sometimes even in ministry or in life or in work, we confuse being effective with being effective. We confuse being busy with making impact. There's a difference. And if we never slow down long enough to spend the time with the Lord that's necessary to rewire the thoughts, to rewire the brain, to rewire the mind, we're constantly going to live in a p- in a place of chaos. One of my favorite quotes and it's an anonymous quote. I have absolutely no idea who said it, but they were super smart. It says, "Between the stimulus and the response, there is a space. And in that space is our power to choose our response. And in your response lies both your growth and your freedom. In that space where we take a pause between something happening to us and the way we respond to it, when we slow down enough to stop, engage our mind, speak to the Holy Spirit, and respond, it's in that space that we not only find our growth, but our freedom. We cannot allow our pace to outrun our peace. If I'm moving faster than my peace allows for, it's time to slow down. One of the beautiful things about the fruit of the Spirit is that it grows. Fruit ripens. Fruit matures. My patience now won't look like my patience 10 years from now, or it should not. The way I love now should not look like I'm going to love 10 years from now when I'm more like Jesus. The peace that I feel now is probably just a drop in the bucket to what the peace I'm going to feel as I look more like Jesus is. Fruit grows, fruit matures. Your pace has to stay at the same maturity level as your peace. Angie, can you guys come on up here? You know, there's two, there's two camps that people kind of sit in when it comes to working through things with the Lord. Some people believe we only need Jesus, and some people believe we need to work through every detail of everything. The truth is right in between. The truth is you have to have Jesus to get to the bottom of it, but there are things that he will heal in a moment. There are other things that he walks you through the process, and here's why. Just a real quick story about my oldest son. Um, My house was the house where all of my appliances disappeared to his bedroom, and I didn't know where they were, but he was taking them apart. But in the process of taking things apart, in the process of deconstruction, he would learn how all the pieces worked together, what was broken, what worked well, and what a whole picture of it would look like. In deconstruction, he learned how to construct and restore. Here's the thing about process, the thing about deconstructing those thoughts, those bad behavior patterns. The reason that God will not just take them away from you is because if you don't take the time to take them apart piece by piece, you won't know how they got there to begin with and you'll walk right back into them. When we take it apart, we learn how it works. We learn how it was put together. We learn what each piece does. We learn how we got where we got to and why we got there. And we are empowered to maintain the piece that we obtain. If he was to walk in and do everything for you, we would learn nothing and be right back where we started. As parents, we don't hand everything to our children. Sometimes we make them figure it out. Why? Because if we give them everything they ever want and do everything for them, what are they going to do when they don't have us? He loves us enough that he allows process. It is not him not listening to you. It is not that he's ignoring you. It is not that he doesn't want wholeness for you. It is not that you are the only one that is destined to live in chaos. It is that he is allowing you the grace and the mercy to walk out the process so when you get to the end of it, you'll know how you got there and how to never get back. There is a beauty in the process. And the knowledge you learn is vital to maintaining it. When we learn through deconstruction how to maintain the wholeness that Jesus intended for us, how to be complete and lacking nothing, we no longer have a need to be validated by anything but Jesus. And I love that song that we sang earlier, y'all, it's my anthem right now. I put it on repeat all the time. Give me Jesus. I don't want anything else. Just give me Jesus because the voice of nothing else in my life should matter. I should hear his voice and his voice alone. And because the voice of God is always correct, I can know that if I'm listening to his voice and none other, then I will continually be walking in righteousness. When we cultivate that state of stillness and completeness and wholeness, we then have the ability to identify attacks of the enemy. Because in the word, when it talks about Jesus and it talks about him walking into situations where he started dealing with people, he would say that his spirit was troubled and that's how he would know where to go and what to do. And that word troubled literally means to like roll, like a boil, like a water that is boiling, that the surface has broken on. Here's the thing, y'all. If we live in such a state of trouble that we can't identify when more trouble is coming, the enemy has free access to wreak havoc in our lives because we can't identify him before he's done what he came to do. If we don't find a way to get peace, wholeness, completeness, shalom in our own lives where there's a stillness and a steadiness to the inside of us, we are a sitting duck to the attack of the enemy. Because we are so internally troubled that our own chaos disguises his attack. When we're in a state of wholeness and completeness, identifying the attack of the enemy comes so quickly at the moment we feel that trouble that we're able to say, oh, no, not today. Not today. We're able to deal with the situations as they come. Before we pray today, I'm going to have Audrey sing this song. And I'm going to warn you, if you wore makeup today, sorry for you, because... This song will wear you out. <laughs> it's absolutely incredible. Listen to the heart of the song. Listen to the stillness required to hear the voice of God, to feel the peace of God. And then after we get Through this, we're just going to sit in it for a minute because I just feel the Holy Spirit asking us to just rest and let this sink in for a second, okay? Because this is a lot, a lot of scripture, a lot of stuff. We're going to let it sink in for a minute. After that, we're going to talk about our action steps to get ready for next week. Sound like a plan?